the New Zealand Tech Podcast. Brought to you by Gorilla Technology. Proactive and strategic IT. Greetings and welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. We are at episode 379. I'm Paul Spain. I'm Greg Lindsay. And I'm Mike Jenkins. Welcome along. Thank you both for, uh, for joining the show today. Now, um, maybe we start with you, Greg. You can maybe fill listeners in where you sort of fit into this, uh, this world of technology. You've, of course, been uh, here in Auckland um, speaking at the uh, T-Tech event that uh, ITS uh, have been running. Yes, no, I've been a guest of the Ministry of Transport this week. Um, I'm a senior fellow at the at New Cities and the director of strategy at LA Commotion, which is a new mobility festival. So uh, I study, you know, autonomous vehicles, connected mobility, uh, intersection of that with housing and other forms of work. So I'm really sort of looking at the world that we're building around all these new forms of transport and delivery. So we could call you a futurist too. Some do, some do. A small F futurist. <laughs> and uh, Mike, tell us uh, where you fit in. So we're in the capital markets. We deal with investments and infrequently traded assets and just sort of trying to perpetuate that journey of democratization of finance, just making it more accessible to the individual investors. Great. Well, looking forward to, uh, to hearing more from, uh, from both of you um, as, we, as we get into the, the podcast. Uh, but first up, a f- you know, few news topics that uh, are relevant. Um, Spark this week have kicked off a 5G a mobile trial in Wellington. Now, I think you know, this is something that, that a lot of people are curious about. Will 5G mean that we don't need the new fiber optic uh, network, the ultra-fast broadband that, of course, uh, has been being built over the last eight, eight years? Uh, you know, does 5G replace that? Does it, does it uh, you know, really change, change the whole game? Um, that's certainly the, you know, one of the things that I'm coming across out there. Um, look, I, I don't think we really know quite what things are going to look like if, you know, if we look uh, five or ten years out. Certainly, uh, for five G to even work, there there needs to be fiber on the ground to actually connect up all the cell sites. Mm. And you know, although we've heard in the media about these sort of uh, you know crazy fast uh, potential speeds of five G uh, networks and the, and the test that uh, Spark uh, or the trial that they did in, in Wellington showed off sort of you know nine gigabits per second type of uh, connectivity, of course. That wasn't with you know loads and loads of people on a cell site that was you know testing it with you know with maybe one or two uh, connections. So um, you know I think the the reality is we you know we definitely need the uh, uh, we need fiber in place. Um, and you know, I think this will, will come down in some degrees to uh, uh, you know to competitive pressures. It's gonna it's gonna vary a lot. I think from location to location um, to deliver the five G at the top speeds. Uh, they're talking about needing to really sort of infill and you know put in a, a lot more uh, cell sites. And the the millimeter wave technology they talk about, um, you know, isn't something that can you know cut through buildings and and all sorts. There's certainly some. Uh, some limitations there, so um, yeah, really, there's there's a lot that's not known, but uh, it's certainly a discussion we'll be we'll be diving into more. Uh, it seems like yeah, maybe we're you know two years or so away from seeing five uh, G be a be a um, be a, a thing here in uh, in New Zealand, and we've got to cut through things like uh, access to spectrum, and you know the the um, 
the range in which 5G will operate, yeah, we can use some of the the band uh, that with band radio uh, frequency that uh, you know carriers already have today. Um, but a key part of it is about getting into some of those other ranges. So I think there's a, a still a fair bit to be uh, to be worked out. Um, is this a, an area of interest for for either of you? Are you sort of curious around, for instance, uh, you know, Greg, how how this might uh, impact the city of the the future? You know, it's certainly been been talked about as a as as a key to uh, the Internet of Things and you know, connecting uh, you know, basically anything to the internet. Yeah, I say I've been less focused on the actual rollout of 5G than really sort of the implications of what we're going to do with it. So yeah. the, the two areas that I think of as germane to my interest is one, you know, the incredible bandwidth required if we're going to have a world of autonomous vehicles that are going to need to communicate at those speeds. And the second is, you know, in, in, in AV circles or at least in mobility circles, uh, we always refer to the nightmare scenario where this all goes as the Wally scenario. Like in the, you know, in the future, are you simply going to be in a chair that moves and, and you have a, a screen strapped to your face to feed you ads? <laughs> yeah. And I think about that because you know you if you look at all the various reports by cisco and others like 90 percent of that network traffic on 5g they expect to be high def video so i don't know i'm, I'm a little apprehensive of a world where i can basically watch something in 4k on my phone you know uh, that's streaming live over that but um it'll be interesting what, what are we actually going to do with it and what's going to be meaningful for it i hope it'll be something that's going to enable more mobility and more people to enjoy being in place to, to, with each other versus like let's just pump more netflix down the pipe yeah, it's interesting. You, you mentioned autonomous vehicles, and and um, I'm you know I'm really curious about do we or don't we need five G for for autonomous vehicles? You know the ones that are on the on the road uh, today certainly don't rely on on five G, and you know as soon as you're relying on that sort of infrastructure. You know, what do you do when it when it goes down? What do you do when you don't have the uh, the connectivity? So you know, I, I, you know, I, I guess I tend to think maybe we have to plan for the lowest common denominator, which is that you know you don't guarantee that there's any connectivity at any given time. Although having connectivity might give you a richer uh, you know richer set of data and, and information to to allow you to you know be even better than you could be without the connectivity. Yeah, no, there definitely should be fail safer. It should, it should fail safely when those networks go down. But you know, again, speaking of conference full of ministry folks it, it's um you know if we want to have these broader benefits of large-scale coordination and efficiency and throughput you're going to need something that can handle uh you know that number of vehicles and handle that level of complexity of it so you're gonna need something like it and you know do you think that uh the data collection is, is going to be really important as well that there's sort of continuous you know feedback and we'll we'll talk later about uh you know an incident that's, that's just happened with a uh autonomous vehicle but uh you know that maybe legislation might uh, dictate that any autonomous vehicle that's on the road has to be continually feeding back uh information so should something happen um you know that's available to authorities and so on no, totally. I mean, I mean, telemetry, obviously, we know from, you know, Formula One racing, the importance of telemetry and the sort of thing. And, and, you know, every level of the autonomous car stack, they want to collect that data in real time. I mean, I've had conversations with even companies like Castrol, which is very interested in like, what, you know, the telemetry data, they're gonna be able to harvest off this for maintenance thing. So I think it's fair to say these are going to be transmitting all the time, all the sort of diagnostic stuff that'll be leveraged into not just, you know, real time fleet coordination, but you know, understanding the health of the fleet and things like that. So, so yeah, there's definitely gonna be a concerted effort to get that out of there and real and something close to real time. Yeah, yeah. Anything you wanted to add on that, Mike? Yeah, look, I mean, I think that we certainly will be beneficiaries of the speed of download. Mm. You know, a lot of what we're doing in um, with Syndex is about 
presenting information to investors, and a lot of them are mobile. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've got you know large PDF documents, sometimes a number of them. Um, you know, we want to start building quantitative models as well to have a look at how asset classes perform and that sort of thing. And you need you need sort of you know fast downloads and good good bandwidth. So I think we'll be a mm. beneficiary mm. of it definitely. And and you know you, you, we talked earlier. You know you're you're talking about some of the um, the the assets that might be uh, you know represented on the on the platform, be you know commercial properties <clears throat> and, and so on. And look, I you know I imagine going forward we're going to see much more sort of you know connectivity into uh, into that sort of infrastructure, whether it's for uh, you know security, whether it's you know checking whether uh, you know a building needs maintenance in some form. Uh, yeah, there's probably a whole range of a whole range of aspects so you know mobile infrastructure I, I imagine will uh, you know will have a part to play there too yeah definitely you know one of the asset classes we're pretty active in is agriculture and I um, mean some of the developments there from a tech perspective are just phenomenal in terms of looking at soil types and you know trying to understand production levels and then reporting on them is an enormous amount of data so being able to crunch that and get it out to investors really quickly in sort of real time would be really cool um, probably a little way off that, but yeah, mm, I, mm. I think you get the point. Now, three um, D printing is you know uh, something that you know some years ago it was sort of the big the big buzz, and everyone was excited around how we you know we wouldn't need to go and buy anything uh, in the future because we'd just three D three D print all these things ourselves. And yeah, the reality is not quite that. But I've been uh, very interested in what the possibilities are around the idea of of three D printing uh, homes. And we've certainly, you know, seen a number of videos over the over the years of seeing, uh, um, you know, some homes that are, that are being uh, built by sort of, you know, three D uh, printing, uh, you know, concrete uh, type type buildings as you know potentially suitable for, uh, uh, you know, standalone homes in, in most cases. Um, and look, the uh, the the story that I came across. Uh, over the last few days is about the um, uh, Vulcan printer and talk of being able to print an entire home uh, for around 10,000 US dollars. Um, that certainly captured my, my attention. Yeah. What are your thoughts on Un- this one, Mike? Unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. You know, originally from South Africa, and you know, Africa is a continent that is desperately short of housing. Mm. And assuming they can actually bring that unit cost down, you can just see the application there. It's just phenomenal. Um, you know, even in New Zealand, you know, we've got a lot of people that are sort of in poverty and that kind of stuff. So, I mean, that sort of technology, I think, from a socio-economic perspective is just, just phenomenal. It would be fantastic. Yeah, I, I guess there's 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 probably a little bit more um, to to the picture, but you know certainly hearing those sort of headline uh, numbers because I imagine you know I don't imagine that the the uh, you know well a the ten thousand dollars is not going to be a a very big home, um, but there is this whole whole tiny house movement and um, so on. But yeah, there there are certainly a few things to to work out. Have you been looking at this one, Greg? Yeah, I've been following the Icon House, which uh, they debuted. At South by Southwest uh, last week or the week before, and uh, you know, there's a couple of important caveats with it. One, the reason they're they're selling it as a house 
for the bottom billion, you know, for the millions in the global south, is that it's not actually up to code uh, for those of us in New Zealand or the United States. Like right, it's a ten thousand right. dollar house that is that looks great, um, but it's not something that actually we can legally live in. Which so it's sort of a, a, a pure demo that way. And and second, you know, I wonder, and this is the, this is I think the problem that's bedeviled a lot of sort of three D printing that it's a solution in search of a problem, or it's not a perfect fit for a lot of things. And in the case of housing, a lot of housing construction can be done for less than ten thousand dollars. A lot of the housing problem for affordable housing in the global south is a political problem or it's an economics problem um you know the reason you know you see people still living in slums like Daravi and mumbai is because the states built them apartments but they just build them on the middle of nowhere where there's no access to jobs or their family or anything else so so there's a lot more work that can be done in, in creating i think the real breakthrough could be really interesting is much more modular housing um mm. that people can make themselves so my counter to the 3d printed house is um the chilean architect alejandro aravena who uh, has uh, you can download open source house designs where you build yes. half a house yep. and then over time the owners build the other half and I think about what happens if you do that and you get a tech company or you get a, a Tesla and they get 99 year solar panel rights on the roof of that so you can almost give housing away there's some real interesting efforts if, what if you apply tech business models hmm. to these problems where you know you get interesting assets out of it and you can basically give away housing and maybe that'll be with 3D printing too maybe $10,000 house is a great deal if you can basically put out a force of them and collect energy off them yeah, I'm, I'm sure there must be uh, there must be a, you know a lot more thinking that's going to go into this over the you know next few years ahead, and you know it certainly does appear that what we're seeing is sort of a you know scratching of the surface in terms of what the potential might be down the track, and yeah, when when you th- you think of it in terms of well building uh, you know say building a house in in uh, New Zealand for instance, yeah how. How close does this come? What other th- things need to be done to actually make it practical? You know, if you've got one of these things sort of that that just gets printed, you know, how do you handle uh, the wiring? How do you handle the plumbing and all all those other uh, elements? And and those you know certainly seem to be um, yeah somewhat complicating factors at the at the moment. Um, and yeah, getting something that's suitable, and then you know, what about uh, high density housing and uh, you know, building multi level of apartments inside? I don't think too many people um, would be you know super confident in this technology yet to build something that's sort of you know safe safe at, uh, at, at multi levels. But uh, you know, you can imagine if the focus was put on it, that you know, eventually we would be able to get there on uh, on that front as well. Um, but just dropping concrete down that's not reinforced or you know i don't know what all the other elements are this is certainly not my my area of expertise but uh you know i can imagine if we get all those other surrounding pieces then uh you know a few years out we we may be in a in a pretty good position mm-hmm. um now on to um apple have launched a new uh family page that sort of pulls together all its uh, parental tools in, uh, in one place. And yeah, I, I guess, uh, you know, the, the reason this caught my eye is as a, you know, of a father, a, you know, a parent, um, you know, you, you definitely notice there are some sort of challenges with the online uh, world t- today. And, um, you know, I uh, was... I think I turned on the, the, the TV at home uh, the other day and whatever set-top box it was that was was currently connected um you know was showing uh something to do with um alien abductions and uh, you know this is the sort of thing that uh, you know could could upset or or confuse a, a youngster um but 
you know that had just I guess YouTube had flow you know gone from whatever he was watching and you know eventually picked this thing up and uh, and and put it on the screen. Um, so I you know I do like the idea of of you know tools that that manage what. Uh, what content uh, you know that uh, that you know kids uh, are going to see can be uh, yeah, kept in in balance and the parents given some level of uh, control. Yeah, there's. I mean, as a as a as a parent myself, I've started delving into this, and there's some really fascinating and disturbing things going on, particularly with sort of algorithmic content. Which I'll be curious to know whether Apple can solve that, or whether, mm. say, YouTube in particular is poisoned at the root. I mean, there's that research in the last week or so showing that YouTube seems hardwired to show more extremist content of whatever you see. The algorithm propels you towards that, and I've seen that on YouTube Kids. There are apparently conspiracy videos that are going around and exposing kids to. And then there's the work by um, James Bridle, the internet artist, who's sort of explored the long tail of algorithmically generated YouTube kids content, like remixing elements together in really weird situations. Mm. So, um, so yeah, I, I think, you know, it, it's part of the sort of larger disillusionment we're having with Facebook and YouTube and a lot of these sort of networks that there's disturbing things going on in the depth. So I, I'll be certain to check out the new tools. I haven't seen them yet myself, but it's something made me wonder, like in terms of not just dialing back my children's screen time for their attention span, but increasingly worried about what it is going on in the depths of their favorite sites. Mm. Mm. So you given any thought to Mike? Yeah, look, I'm, uh, fortunately I'm past the, 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 <laughs> the stage where I need to control the kids' content. But yeah, look, I think certainly when my kids were much younger, there was, a, there was just simply no way you could control it. You know, they had some TV time, but you never really were sure what was going to be dished up via the, via the internet. And those algorithms, I think, are probably you know, a real curse. Um, but I think that you know, if, as long as I suppose it's accessible for the regular parent, fantastic. But I mean, what you're talking about, Greg, is actually quite complicated in, in, in its own nature. And trying to control it through a simple interface, I think, is going to be pretty challenging. Yeah, you can't r- exactly go and rewrite the uh, the algorithms no, that, you uh, that YouTube uses. And of course, we tend to, to, to use a whole mix of things, right? So um, look, that's you know very nice. Apple have done something there, and you know Microsoft have their pieces. Everybody has their you know their take on it. Uh, but in terms of sort of one central way of of being able to manage and and control these things, and you know certainly in our house we've got you know access to lots lots of forms of of media through a whole you know a whole number of of providers, <laughs> and they've all got their own uh, controls on it. So I mean you know we we've taken one particular approach with. Uh, with the TV, uh, where you know, basically you turn it on, you need a pin number to be able to do anything. Um, so that gives sort of some control that uh, you know it's not just on all the time watching whatever. Um, but uh, you know that that that's that's uh, that's a very very simple uh, you know mechanism that's putting like putting a padlock around the TV or something. That's uh, not too much more advanced than that. Um, now one other uh, topic that. I I thought was sort of curious in light of um, Ring having having just been uh, you know bought by by Amazon is is Nest which is of course part of of uh, Google Alphabet uh, now they're doing some push push uh, forward uh, they've got a, a US thirty nine dollar temperature sensor that they're launching uh, and also video doorbell and smart lock. Uh, so it, it seems like that uh, uh, Amazon and Google are sort of going to be uh, arch rivals in this uh, in the smart home uh, space. And yeah, I'm kind of uh, I'm kind of curious what the next phase will be for Google because look, it's you know 
it's interesting they're releasing some products but uh, you know what's what's their bigger play from a, an e-commerce perspective? Uh, you know, do we see them uh, roll out offerings that become in direct competition uh, to Amazon in the future? Um, do you think that could be realistic, Greg? Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly in the camp. You know, I like uh, you know Bruce Sterling when he wrote his book, uh, The Epic Struggle for the Internet of Things. You know, that it's the five stacks are competing at every level against each other. So, I mean, at some level. A collision was it was it was inevitable in that regard, but um, you know I, I mean I'm curious. It's still this this notion of this larger you know surveillance culture in every piece of your life. Just collect the data. I mean I, at this point I wonder are there even business models? It's just you know aggregate the data. And I think Facebook has acknowledged this, or someone did that. You know there's almost cross subsidies of information. You just deploy products to collect info in one line of business, and then you redeploy that info in another part. So you know at some level it's just you know knowing who's home and when and 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 collecting all that data. I'm, I'm you find uses down the road um i the thing i worry about all the smart home stuff is you know or, or think about it is is you know do we really want to turn uh, our daily lives into attack surfaces for hackers or malware um you know it's it's a i've written a report on that a couple of years ago for the atlantic council and you know my favorite line uh, is um you know arthur c clark once said that any sufficiently advanced technology is magic well any sufficiently advanced hacking is a haunting so you know are we building haunted houses for ourselves if these start to go awry you know um, so it'll it'll be interesting to see what the what the trade offs actually are. Is it worth it for me to get my house infested with a worm uh, in exchange for Amazon to be able to deliver a package directly into my refrigerator as part of their algorithmic resupply you know mechanisms? Um, yeah, it'll be, it'll be curious to see. People people will trade away anything for convenience though, so I'm sure it'll be a success. Yeah, I mean it's an interesting one because I you know I guess that we we you know we weigh up risks to a to a degree, right? And uh you know if you think well it's going to you know maybe maybe one in a million people's going to get hit, then you probably think well that's not going to be me, so I'm okay. Um but yeah, it depends on how how those numbers actually lie in the long term and and, and what the reality is are. Mike, do, do you uh, have any interest in these in these smart no, home no, things? Look, I, have I you just, managed to keep your distance a little bit? Yeah, I think I'm probably a little bit old school. I mean, I just find it terribly invasive, yeah. and I don't know that the benefits or the you know the um, the conveniences necessarily are justified by what you need to do in order to actually gain that that benefit, um, if there is one at all. Um, I think just kind of the old practical key in the lock works perfectly for me. Thank you very much. <laughs> yep. No, I think that's uh, that's a fair approach. And um, you know, uh, look, we will see these things develop, and there are different. I think there are you know different different approaches to how you how you make them work for you, right? And uh, look, you know, a lot of these cameras now are, are in home type cameras, and you know, I think there's there's certainly um, yeah, much bigger risk around those, and we, you know we've seen that in the past with uh, with cameras which have been you know shipped out to people's homes, not well set up, uh, and uh, from a security perspective, and uh, you go online and can you know look into into people's private lives, um, which is you know certainly not a not an ideal outcome, and there's all sorts of variations on on what that could uh, look like. I think there was a ho- hotel uh, some while back that. Uh, had their systems hacked and they had smart locks across all of the hotel rooms uh, and uh, yeah that created uh, a fair bit of, a fair bit of drama for them sure. yeah, and, and a yeah. ransomware scenario for that yeah. regard yeah yeah, yeah and, um, and I guess it's you know part of part of the challenge that we have as a society these days is that you know when we started using things like Facebook and Instagram and all all of those types of applications we didn't really consider you know the implications of having so much of yourself 
on the internet. And it's only in the retrospective kind of eye that you look at anything which probably mm. wasn't ideal. Mm. And I mm. think with you know the automation of the home, there's a, there's a whole lot of really cool stuff. But um, I think I really want to understand what the proposition is in terms of me as you know somebody in the home benefiting, yeah. Yeah. Um, and what are the risks? And at the moment, the risks probably are probably you know, a lot greater than I think what mm. the benefits are. Mm. You know, I guess on the flip side, you know, most of us will carry around a, a smartphone of some sort that can, you know, probably do very similar, you know, similar sorts yeah. of things. If it's uh, if it's compromised, you know, we have our laptops with with webcams on them that are, you know, staring at us throughout the day. Um, so, you know, a, a lot of you know, a lot of this is already sort of done, and and you know, the risks are uh, probably. Well, the the uh, certainly the the devices we've already you know grown used to and and you know we're using them in a pretty widespread way um, and uh, you know I guess looking at it from a city's perspective uh, there there are so many devices I mean there are there are some more extreme than others and we've certainly heard some concerning things around. Um, where China might be might be going with with some of their surveillance surveillance pieces, and so you know when you when you combine uh, maybe governments that that have um, well certainly in, you know less democratic locations, uh, you know where the where the public can't throw somebody out if they do something that's uh, not in their best interest, then uh, you know you can end up with some pretty. Um, worrying situations, I think. No, absolutely. I mean, I think, and this, I don't want to jump ahead to discuss. We want to get into Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, but you know what? What that exposed there—the fact that two hundred seventy thousand opt-ins produce fifty million accounts—is is that a. I think this is my suspicion: is that you know we're going to come to regret one day the unknown massive backend aggregation of these data sets. It's not mm-hmm. the devices; it's the mm-hmm. fact that it's just pervasive surveillance and aggregation. And um, and you know, and then and then even these companies themselves aren't even sure how it's being used sometimes. Um, and then yeah, and then the real nightmare scenario is is the Chinese surveillance state that's being constructed um, with Sesame Credit and what they've done in in uh, particularly in the West. Um, and you know, I, I yeah. This didn't mean to turn into the dystopian <laughs> tech hour here, Paul. But, but yeah, these are the things I dwell upon. Well, we can, we can yeah we can maybe come come, come back to that. Um, so let's let's um, let's move on because I d- I did want to talk about uh, really some of the aspects that you were talking about your keynote uh, yesterday at um, the conference. Now this is. Um, the T-Tech Transport Innovation Conference, which uh, um, ITS run, and I hadn't come across the uh, the conference until uh, until last week, actually. And when I came across it, I thought, "Boy, this is uh, this is an event that's worth worth getting to." Um, and uh, you know, ITS as an organisation seems to be doing some uh, pretty pretty good stuff um, too. And this this is really just one one part of it. Um, but one of the things that uh, tied into the the, the conference uh, was the announcement last week of uh, of Cora, and uh, uh, a lot of people will have already seen uh, the mainstream uh, media coverage around this. And this is a, uh, um, I guess you were you. In simple terms, you might call it a, a hybrid between an aeroplane and, and a helicopter, but of course it's so much more than that because it's an autonomous vehicle, uh, it's an electric vehicle, um, and be, because of the, the nature of how they've designed it, yes, there will be noise when it when it takes off, um, but they'll be different, I imagine, from a helicopter and 
in that you're dealing with an electric engine, you've still got you know rotor noises and so on, um, but not the same sort of disruptive noise uh, when it's travelling because it you know flies like a, an aeroplane. Um, and uh, you know we we got to um, meet and and hear from uh, Fred Reed yesterday, who's the uh, the CEO at uh, Zephyr Airworks, who's uh, responsible for that work uh, here in New Zealand. Um, and it's a um, uh, there are um, a division of or a, or an entity of uh, Kitty Hawk, which um, you know some may recall uh, is uh, is funded by. Um, Google co-founder Larry Page. So, um, you know, they've, they've had some fairly deep pockets to uh, um, uh, dive into to, to fund this thing. It sounds like uh, Cora started its uh, development back in uh, 2010. So, you know, they've really been keeping this thing under the radar. It's, uh, it's rather impressive, actually. Um, Greg, you saw uh, uh, you know you you saw uh, the talk by uh, by by Fred. He was um, you know speaking um, after you, I think, um, yesterday. Um, what were what were your thoughts on this, and where you know where this fits into the to the future? Because um, yeah, there's all sorts of you know things that that come to mind. And I still haven't got my head around quite what the implications are. You know, who is this uh, technology going to be relevant to? Uh, is it a you know uh, the the very elite upper echelon? Um, and you know how how will this impact cities of the future? Yeah, I mean, as a feat of engineering, I mean, Core is incredible. I mean, uh, you know what they've been able to do to get the power throughput to do vertical takeoff and landing in particular. Um, you know, to me, it's interesting in two respects. One, there's an essay from The Atlantic in 1942 where Igor Sikorsky himself imagined cities of the future where you'd live 100 miles outside of the city and giant, you know, helicopter buses would pick you up and take you in. And, uh, and so this vision's been around. And, um, and then more recently, I moderated a conference a few years ago at the Googleplex with Astro Teller, the captain of Moonshots, who runs the Skunk Works X division. And he started his talk by saying, you know, we, we thought about building a jetpack. We could do it technically, but what would be the business model for jetpacks? And we decided it was real estate. You put on a jetpack and you fly over a mountain to your remote cabin there. And so that's what I think of immediately with Cora. And as someone, you know, studies cities and loves cities and the fact that, you know, that, I mean, we're in Auckland, which exists through huge urban density, uh, is that I don't, you know, Cora's not great for that. Cora's going to be great for reaching your inaccessible mountain house. The thing that I worry about is, and the thing that I think, you know, uh, the ministry will have to think about and regulators worldwide is, is, you know, how do you make sure you keep the benefits of being able to reach remote communities or reach, uh, you know, wilderness areas or vacation, but but you don't want people trying to commute into the center of Auckland and those things. I mean, you know, I, I've, I've been here only a handful of days and I've already heard the pained way in which people talk about traffic here, which coming from the States is even alarming to me that you're so concerned about traffic. So I worry that, you know, that we're going to create aerial traffic or just trying to get them into buildings and city centers could be difficult someday. Um, but I think it's a long way off because I think it's ironic that, you know, that the, that Larry Page, you know, uh, Mr. Tech disruption on digital side is investing in aerospace where you measure development cycles in decades, you know, with regulators. So it'll, it'll still be a few years yet, but I think before any of us fly in a Cora, just purely because of uh, certification. Yeah. Well, that, that's an interesting point that you raise and you know i've had um some some discussion um you know with with fred uh, around that perspective and and others within um within the business and i guess my my take on it is one of the key reasons they've chosen new zealand is we we are one of um you know only only a handful of uh countries in the world that can handle that full uh certification of a um 
what would you, well, it's not an aeroplane, but, you know, of uh, aircraft. Um, and, you know, New, New Zealand has, a, uh, you know, I guess been involved in that space for a long time. We, you know, we're able to take a craft right through to sort of, you know, full certification. And I actually heard, heard an earlier uh, talk where Fred Reed was talking about uh, founding Virgin America. And uh, he was the, the founding CEO there, and uh, yeah, he uh, yeah, I think at one point they had about five hundred uh, staff, and they were sort of trying to get through all all the hoops to be able to uh, you know get get uh, planes in the air, and they had all these regulatory uh, hurdles that that uh, held them up, and uh, yeah, I think there was uh, there were a number of reasons for for some of that pushback. A lot of it seemed to be quite political. Um, so you know the the fact that you know re, this was this was Virgin, this was you know Branson's brand, and Branson uh, and Virgin have, you know made it quite difficult for the American airlines uh, to to uh, be able to fly in and out of uh, Heathrow. So you know there were some other things going on behind the scenes, but it seems like uh, New Zealand uh, has been you know very very keen uh, to work with with Zephyr Airworks and, and Kitty Hawk and uh, and 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 the Cora and uh, you know making uh, making it um, uh, a more smooth um, you know environment for them to work in so you know I think that's quite a that's quite a key to New Zealand's place and look you know hope, hopefully for uh, for New Zealand you know we'll see others who are you know bringing their uh, their work into New Zealand because it's a, it's a bit smoother now as long as uh, you know our environment still keep things safe and that we don't cut any corners from that perspective which you know I, I wouldn't imagine would would be the case um, then look New Zealand could be a you know a great place for uh, for more more of these things Mike, um, what's your thoughts on the, this type of vehicle? Can you imagine yeah, look, uh, look, your I, commute getting a, a whole lot better? Would you be? Would you look, be interested? The technology in that? is fantastic, you know, and it's just wonderful that it's actually happening in New Zealand. But I do struggle with the with the application. Um, you know, it's, uh, our problem here is congestion, and I think if it's a two man or a four man vehicle, you know, we're not solving the congestion issue. We're just moving it from the ground and putting it into, you know, into sort of the um, into the into the air. Um, but, you know, look, uh, electric motors and aviation have never been very good bedfellows. Um, you know, you've got to have a pretty determinable amount of time up there. And if batteries are running dry and you still need to hang around, it could be quite, could be quite a challenge. But I think it's a fantastic development, really yeah. exciting. Well, I, I had uh, more of a, a bit of a chat with uh, with Fred Reed separately, and we may end up. Uh, there's, certainly, there's going to be a video with some of that, which will be going up on uh, um, LinkedIn and you know maybe one or two other channels. Um, we may also take that audio and put it into the New Zealand Tech Podcast feed. So um, I'll see how that goes. I think um, actually the guys that uh, host the New Zealand Electric Vehicle Podcast or EV Podcast, uh, they're very keen to to share that story mm-hmm. on on that one so if anyone's listening and you want to get it that may well be the, the place to get it uh, quickest and uh, yeah you can look out for the for the video on um, on, on my LinkedIn um, so yeah I think I mean there's there's a lot of aspects we probably could um, dive into in terms of talking about that yeah should it should it should it be um, a much bigger vehicle you know, does it make sense? Is it going to be cost effective? How do they, you know, how do they cope with uh, battery charging and and so on? And I, and I chatted with Fred around some of some of those aspects. Um, now, earlier we um, 
we uh, alluded to this, this accident uh, that has uh, ha- has just just happened. Um, it was in uh, Arizona, and an autonomous um, Uber where. We understand, um, you know, someone has been uh, run over and 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 killed. Um, there seems to be a little bit of a mix of of information around about it. Um, Greg, you've been following this one quite quite closely. Um, how concerned do you think that we should should be, you know, about this? Because you know we're really looking towards a future where it's not just you know autonomous uh ubers but autonomous buses and and you know all all sorts of uh uh vehicles and look if we you know if we can't trust this stuff um you know should it be time to sort of wind back the clock and you know stop stop this well i don't think so in that regard i I, it's i don't think we should overreact to it i mean i certainly don't think autonomous vehicles will kill more people than human driving air does i mean we already drive incredibly unsafe vehicles but to me it's this is an opportunity that we take a major step back and question the legitimacy uh, around autonomous vehicles and how and how this is happening so i mean it's telling this happened in arizona where the governor there through executive order massively loosened the regulations around avs and and allowing them to do live fire testing on real streets. So I think that policy should be double checked. And I also think, I mean, this is the thing that, you know, the person who was killed, according to the New York Times reporting, was a homeless person. Um, you know, there's some, there, there's there's uh, reporting saying that the, the car was speeding at the time. There was a human safety driver in it who apparently was not impaired, but also didn't act in time. Uh, and I think the police in a statement have said that, you know, that there was, that a human driver would have made the same mistake. To which my first response is, AVs are not supposed to make the mistakes of human drivers. This is the whole source of their moral legitimacy that it's going to save a lot of lives. So if it's not going to do that, or if it's going to be, you know, roughly equivalent, or it's going to have this, then I think we need to look into it. And, and then the second wrinkle of that is, 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 you know, the entire history of the American OEMs is they were happily willing to sacrifice lives on a cost benefit analysis to get technology out there. We know, I mean, Ralph Nader built his career on campaigning against some of the automotors to, uh, automaker tactics. So I wonder if th- this is the moment where the, where the OEMs are realizing, you know what, it's better to be a first mover, get these vehicles on the road, get that testing regimen out there. And, you know, if we have to break a few eggs, quote unquote, um, you know, I think that's morally questionable on that. But, um, but yeah, you know, this was an inevitable thing that's going to happen. We've been waiting for the first death from AVs. The real question is, is how are the regulators going to react? The National Transportation Safety Board is on the scene. How are we going to establish legal cause? Who's at fault here? Is it Uber? Is it the human driver? Is it the coders? That, that's certainly been the thing going around in my mind is, you know, how do, how do they handle it from, uh, from, from that perspective, right? Where's, where does the liability uh, actually sit? And as you say, there was there was a you know there was somebody sitting in that seat. But um, if you're sitting in a seat all day of a vehicle that's driving itself, can you be expected to be paying uh, attention all the time or or not? Right when you you get lulled into a false sense of security because ninety nine point nine 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 you know whatever percentage of the the time it is, um, it's oper- you know it's, it's it's operating safely. Well, I'd say at T Tech we you know, we had multiple presentations talking about the various levels of autonomy one through five, and and multiple presenters said that we're going to skip level three, which is the something goes wrong and the car hands control back to you at the moment that you're most distracted. So I'm glad we've realized that this yeah. is a terrible idea. But yeah. even then, this is, you know, uh, I don't know if this car was technically level four. Um, it was obviously under test conditions, but like mm-hmm. we, we may need to rethink just how safe the car is in, in some mm-hmm. regard too. Mm-hmm. 
what are your thoughts, Mike? Have you been uh, look, you think, know, w- watching this sort of whole move? Well, look, toward, I haven't towards... been watching it as closely as Greg has, but I, you know, look, it's, it's a very unfortunate incident, obviously. You know, I think out of all of the technologies, the AV probably, you know, it's a city like Auckland. I mean, it's a, it's a tremendous, tremendously exciting technology that can actually help the city quite, mm. quite substantially. So hopefully, in, you know, the, the investigation reveals that there's a, you know, there's a good reason why this has occurred. Um, and, you know, um, hopefully it continues. Hopefully the projects continue and, mm. you know, they develop the technology and we, we get it sooner, sooner rather than later. Greg, what are your thoughts on, on how we get the best outcomes out of aut- autonomous, you know, technology? What do you, what would you like the, uh, you know, the, the future to look like so we, we balance this? Because, you know, we, we hear about all types of scenarios which potentially could lead to more vehicles on the road and, you know, you, you uh, hear of sort of scenarios of, well, you know, you, you would have your, your building or your, uh, you know, your vehicle might be circling around the building where you are waiting for you to be finished and, you know, you, you clog up the streets uh, rather than, uh, you know, vehicles being parked and so on. So, um, you know, there's, there's, there's a whole, you know, bunch of perspectives on how things could turn out. What do you see as sort of an, an ideal way that these things might uh, might land, and sort of you know some some years away if if we get it right? Yeah, no, I've done some work around this, and um, you know, in talking to mayors and and transportation officials around the world, and you know, part of the, what they see in autonomous vehicles in a way is a lever to really do some changes. So I think beyond safety, as we just discussed, I think you know the first thing that cities need to think about with AVs is is road pricing or some form of congestion pricing because there's like a twofold risk, right? You alluded to the zombie car where we have empty AVs roaming around. And then the second part is there's lots of models that show that, you know, AVs, shared AVs could eliminate the total number of cars, but they would just be on the road all the time. So you could you could generate a lot more congestion with a far a smaller number of cars. So, um, so I think there's going to be a, a need for a lot of smart policy to make sure that they're shared, to make sure that we have, you know, autonomous buses or autonomous minibuses at least um, and, and, and do this. And um, yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's incredibly important that we, that cities figure out ways to basically incentivize them to revive the sort of shared fleets and avoid having individually owned autonomous vehicles. I think it's interesting, by the way, that uh, the U.S. and German OEMs are all looking at this sort of fleet service model and that only Tesla is the one really determined to sell you an autonomous vehicle. So I wonder if they're paying lip service or if they're really committed to this notion of they really tend to sell you, you know, mobility subscriptions, which given how much money you can make from telcos, you know, as we've seen, you know, you pay your pay your fee for your, your cell phone bill, having a mobility package, which is the hot idea um, with AVs at the core of it seems to be the sort of next trendy thing to do. So so it'll be interesting to see, see how cities, you know, control this process, coordinate AVs with the rest of their offerings. And, you know, I'm very concerned that, you know, in a worst case scenario, we see a, a combination of like an Uber and autonomous vehicles like destroy public transit, that they price themselves below that d- deliberately for a period of time until it, it forces out most people off public transit and, and sends that into a ruinous downward spiral. This is exactly what happened with General Motors, mm-hmm. uh, you know, mm-hmm. 70 years ago, by the way. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm certainly interested in this this notion of a mobility uh, subscription. I think that could be, uh, yeah, that, that could be really in- interesting. Um, but we, we're probably a little bit, little bit uh, tight on on time, so we can't dive too much further into that. Um, Mike, I'm keen to hear from you a little bit about um, Syndex and you know how how long you've been operating and uh, you know what the what the business is is all about. Um, I heard from um, 
one of one of uh, the team there, Anderson George, uh, over uh, over email or, or LinkedIn the other day, and um, I had worked with her. Uh, maybe it was Sarchi's or something, you know, twenty odd years ago. And I uh, thought, oh, what's this all about? And uh, you know, lo- looks like you've taken, uh, you know. Uh, an interesting sort of you know quite uh, modern uh, approach to uh, to handling of um, um, you know investments and so on. So maybe you can explain it because you'll do a much better sure, job. Yeah, than well, I look, will. I'll certainly try, Paul. Thanks. <laughs> um, so we're a software as a service business, and uh, really what we're what we're trying to do is, um, I suppose, really um, disrupt private capital markets. You know. Um, since 2008, so much has changed in the way that individuals and people generally invest. And, um, you know, with interest rates and stuff all changing, you know, good investments were really difficult to come by. And a lot of investments were actually kind of not accessible to regular people. And things like crowdfunding, for instance, um, have gone a long way down the line to actually change the accessibility to those styles of investment. But I, call, I guess one of the challenges that you've got is that if you're putting some money on the table and investing in, say, a, in a small tech company, for example, um, at some point post that investment, you're probably going to want to get some of your money or all of your money out. And exits traditionally were done through regular bourses, you know, through the IPO type mm. of um, process. Yeah, when a company ends up listing on the, yeah, on that's the stock right. exchange, which, you know, which doesn't always happen. Which doesn't always happen. And you know, if, you've, if, you're, if you've been watching capital markets over the last 10 years since the GFC, worldwide you would have seen that there's been this decline in the more traditional IPO on the regular exchanges. And part of that really is symptomatic of the fact that you've got a lot more private investors in the market, people that weren't participants before. Um, and instead of companies looking at normal um, exchanges to actually exit, they're now holding on to those private assets and selling them to other allied companies. You know, and the deals with the Googles and the highly publicized ones are, are really sort of an indication of that. Yeah, and it'd also be, it'd be fair to say that um, in the past in, in New Zealand and, and in other parts of the world too, um, you know, investments in, in property and having your own home that was kind of the key investment that that that's right. uh, you know families tended to focus on, but of course that's changed. It's not always so affordable. So you've now got this situation where you know people are are looking uh, whether it's at stock exchange uh, share type investments or or crowdfunded. I mean, you know, I think the 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 whole um, you know selection of options is. Uh, is, is changing so you know it's really important that we we make sure that there there are good options available yeah that's right and you know what we're the the i guess the problem that we were trying to solve for and we continue to try and solve for is this issue around liquidity because that really i think is the nub of the issue and i suppose the difference between you know like an nzx is that you've got many participants um, you've got a whole lot of equity analysts reporting on you know the you know, how companies are faring and what what's going on and whether it's a good or a bad investment. You've got prices that are plentiful. And in the private market, you don't have any of that. So how do you, if you want to exit, A, find somebody who's willing to buy and at what price? So from a syndex perspective, we're using um, you know, market technology to actually try and get the transparency of these investments 
you know, much higher um, so that when you've got an investor coming in, they're able to go and have a look at an opportunity to buy a share or a unit in an investment and do a lot of their own due diligence in terms of what is it about, how has it fared, how has it traded in the past. And in so doing, you then actually increase the probability of a liquidity event. And you know, a good example, as Kiwis, we love property. Um, commercial properties are particularly um, a popular investment category and there's a lot of people that are approaching retirement that actually have units in property syndication and part of what we're doing is you know you as a syndicate or as an issuer of those products you can come to syndex you can list your fund or your syndicate on the platform and then me as a shareholder i can actually say look i want to get out um you know you understand through the transparency and the reporting from the issuer what the price should be and i can go and literally on a peer-to-peer basis offer it to the market Mm-hmm. And on the other side, you know, there'll be people looking for investment and they similarly can go and do due diligence and maybe I'll offer it at 90 cents in the dollar and as the incoming investor, I can say, well, oh, look, I'll offer you 88. And the platform allows them to start negotiating you know, sort of digitally, agree on a price and then, you know, mm-hmm. a transaction mm-hmm. then can actually take place. Now, as we, as we move into, um, you know, I guess a... a, a a different uh, style of investing that we see today, whether it's you know crowdfunding type platforms, whether it's uh, cryptocurrency, does seem to me as though that um, you know the risks are you know are, are increased. Um, you know, I look at some of the things that have you know gone on to crowdfunding platforms and. And of course, it it tends to come down to how much publicity that they manage to get will have a direct you know correlation to how much money they raise, and uh, you know if uh, well we've certainly seen this with the initial sort of coin offering type things in the in the cryptocurrency world. You know, a celebrity gets on board, people fire a whole lot of money in, hoping that maybe they'll ten x or a hundred x any uh, any money that they've sort of thrown in. So you end up with you know uh, you know I guess a um, uh, more sort of gambling sort of style uh, um, situations. How concerned are you about you know about that sort of thing happening and and you know making sure that that people have confidence and uh, um, you know in your exchange and 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 what gets offered there? Yeah, look, look, it's a it's a really good point, and uh, you know there's a lot of anecdotes around that in terms of investing and what you understand in and you know, and one of the things that we're dealing in are real assets so things that you can literally go and give the tires a kick um, you know farms buildings um, and obviously there's there's investment in companies as well but typically that's you know more private equity space um, but I think that for what we're trying to do we, we're hoping to be um, regulated, so we're applying to the Financial Markets mm. Authority for a license to actually be a, an exchange like the NZX, and part of that is actually kind of creating an environment that is safe and secure. And you know the, the offers or the issues that we actually then list on the exchange are ones that we have either done due diligence on, or they're actually being issued by regulated entities like a fund manager or um, you know a similar type of, of body. Mm-hmm. So trying to do as much as we can to actually try and take that risk out of it, and then similarly for all of the participants when they sign up, we take them through all of the regular stuff in terms of de-risking them. So we need to, you know, there's legislation that requires us to know who they are. Um, So we'll do the anti-money laundering checks. We'll make sure that they're the right type of investor so that by the time they get into the market, we actually know that they're good to go. 
and that there's a you know a high probability that the trades are going to be successful, that they're going to be legitimate. And then similarly for the issuers, we've got just like the NZX again a set of rules that they have to actually. Um, you know, they're obliged to actually maintain. So disclosure in particular is really, really important. Um, and they make those disclosures on a regular basis. So again, for the investors, they know that those issues that are on the platform have actually been through due diligence. There's regular reporting. And obviously, if there's regular reporting and a good flow of information, you know, you then raise the probability of having a liquidity event when you actually need them. Mm. So it kind of all works quite well together. And, um, you know, I think that probably what we seeing now is that you take an industry like Agri as a very good example where um, you know there's an enormous amount of activity as a primary industry in that sector and there's a lot of investors looking for opportunity but it's really difficult to access it and it's all perhaps in pockets around the country where this activity is is uh, is taking place and what we're doing on Syndex is trying to pull that all together mm. so that if you're looking for an Agri investment you go to Syndex there's a whole lot of offers and opportunities mm. um, and you're able then to actually invest and I suppose as well it's a bit of a, a bit of a customer journey you made a point earlier that you know a lot of investors are investing in property because it's what we know um, and we've had a few customer journeys where they come in and they're looking for a property investment and suddenly they can see over here that there's perhaps an agri investment an asset class maybe they haven't considered that they look at it and say well shoot this actually looks pretty good um, and they then land up holding an agri asset so I, I suppose really at the end of the day what we're looking at doing is saying look here's a whole lot of like investments held by people like you and you know fill your boots have a look and see what what appeals mm. um, and invest sort of in, a, in an environment that's secure that's trusted and that you know generally speaking has actually got good quality investments on it okay and in terms of the the sort of investors that you are you expect to attract or you i mean you've already been operating for a couple of years so um, are these sort of uh, people at the wholesale investment it's large level? yeah it's largely largely wholesale investors or yep. sophisticated so, investors or yep. in american speak accredited investors yeah um, so it's not it, something that it's not, anyone can just jump on the platform and, we, we uh, do have some retail investors some mom okay. and pop type of investors um, but really, it's it's the domain for for those accredited investors. Yeah, okay. um, you know, a lot of the investments require a certain level of expertise to assess the risk and determine price and things like that. Mm. And you know, pretty much the, the the wholesale investor, I think, is probably our primary market. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you. It's been interesting to uh, to hear. Um, and look, thank you to uh, to both of you for coming on the show. Um, now, Greg, where do people track you down if they're they're interested in keeping up with uh, with some of your commentary, some of the things that you're uh, uh, you're doing? Because we've really only had a very small uh, snapshot uh, of it here. And uh, look, I am am uh, looking and seeing if we can package up some of the audio from uh, from the conference to uh, uh, to share with listeners. So there, there may be another uh, opportunity. But um, how do people you know track you down online i would say my, my online omnibus is uh, is just greglindsay.org where i where i keep most of my work uh and then of course i'm i'm always active on twitter picking fights with someone Excellent. or another well, well we'll share your uh, your twitter handle uh and uh, and that link on uh, on the show notes as well and mike yes yeah, so pretty much you can you can get hold of me via the website um info at syndex.exchange and then via twitter as well okay that's great. All right. Well, thank you both for joining the show this week. Thank you. Good. Right. Thanks, thanks for having us. And thanks, everyone, for listening in. We'll, uh, we'll catch you again this time next week. See ya. 
the New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT.